Thank you. Um, hello, good evening to all of you. You guys hear me okay? Um, all right, everybody on this side of the room, turn and look to people on that side and wave. Say hi, and you guys wave, okay? So I want to introduce you guys. This is Joint Heirs, okay? So live, please meet Joint Heirs. And over here, this is Life. So please meet the lifers. Now, we will have a time of fellowship later on. Um, so if you guys would like, and we certainly hope you do, uh, please take the opportunity to get to know each other. It would be a wonderful opportunity just for the different generations of this church to get to know each other. Uh, and also because for you guys here, in just maybe a few short months for some of you, you're going to be here. And you have to sit on this side. You can't sit on that side anymore. Okay? Uh, and then, of course, within a few short years, obviously, all of you will be over here as well. So, so take advantage of the opportunity. And for all of you who are in joint heirs, they're going to be with you soon. You can't get away from them. They're coming. <laughs> Loud, obnoxious. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. They're, they're wonderful. They're really good. They really are. As their counselor, I can attest to that. Well, uh, it is a joy for me to be here uh, at Joint Heirs and to be able to open up the Word of God with you guys. I understand that you guys are going through a, uh, a doctrinal series on what we believe as a church, and you guys are coming close to the end. Um, tonight's topic is a very interesting one. It's not one that the church necessarily teaches on all that much. And so I hope it will be helpful, it will be beneficial for everybody here. But before we begin, let's open up in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, as we come before your word, we pray for open ears to hear, open eyes to see, and open hearts to receive. Lord, we all come from busy weeks with lots of things going on. And now as we come to worship you in your word, would you calm our hearts? Give us extra attention. Help us not only to learn in our minds, but also to worship in our hearts. Thank you for the opportunity to gather together. Would you lead and guide us into your presence as we study your word together? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The devil. That's our topic tonight, and we have handouts for you guys. They will come in waves because our printer is kind of slow, okay? So if you didn't get one, just don't worry. You'll get one. Uh, sorry, there's nothing fancy about the handout. It's just an outline with space for you to write notes, okay? But our topic is on Satan, and I titled this The Story of a Fallen Angel, The devil, Satan, Lucifer, the prince of darkness, Beelzebub, 
He's referred to by many names in our culture. Almost everybody understands who he is to some degree. Some of the names that we give him are biblical, for example, the devil, that's a biblical name. Other names that we give him, like the prince of demons or the lord of hell, these are fictional. He's been portrayed in stories and paintings, music and movies. Often he's enrobed in red and black. He has monstrous fangs. He has sharp horns. He has evil yellow eyes. Oftentimes he's carrying a pitchfork. He's usually enthroned somewhere in the fiery caverns of hell. He's usually surrounded and served by ugly and sinister beings called demons. In movies, he tends to be too scary for children to lay eyes on. In books and in stories, people can often make a deal with him, sell their souls to the devil. And some of these depictions you guys are very familiar with. Some of them are true about Satan. Many, though, of these depictions are actually fictional. They are not real. And tonight, I want to tell you his story. This is the story of Satan, the story of a fallen angel. And as we go through his story, we, we, will, re, we will journey through six scenes, and you have those in your handout, six scenes in the story of Satan. And please, I implore you, please pay attention as we travel through these six scenes, because there are lessons to be learned here, very important lessons. Each scene will teach us how to deal with the devil. What should we think about him? How should we think about him? How should we relate to him? What should we do about him? And the very first scene that I would draw your attention to, scene number one, is Satan's creation and fall. Satan's creation and fall. And here's the story. In eternity past, there was absolutely nothing. Nothing existed. Nothing existed. There was no space. There was no time. There was no matter. But God existed. God existed, and he has always existed. He was unique because nothing created him. He didn't have a beginning. He didn't have a creator. He just simply eternally existed. And he was eternally a personal being. What that means is he has this sense of personhood about him, this quality of personhood about him. He had always existed as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And yet, in their distinctions, somehow, they were not three separate beings. 
somehow in their distinctions, they were actually still one. So the Bible tells us that they are one all-knowing God, one all-powerful God, not three. And then, about 10,000 years ago, something changed. And God decided to create. And he created the heavens and the earth. Everything that exists today was created at that time, 10,000 years ago, about. God did it. And he did it in six days, six 24-hour days as we know it. And when he created everything that exists today, he didn't have to work very hard. He didn't have to lift up his arms. He didn't have to flex his muscles. In fact, he didn't even have to lift his finger to do it. Psalm 33 tells us that he spoke everything into existence. Psalm 148.5 says, Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. God commanded everything into existence. He spoke and it was so. And it is during this time that God created and he populated the heavens and the earth. That would include all the beings that exist in heaven. Who did he create to populate heaven? These were the angels. The angels were created during the six days of creation. Exodus chapter 20, verse 11 says this. Listen, for in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Did you catch that? In six days... The Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them. Everything that exists in heaven and in earth were created in those six days. That includes the angels. He made them to populate heaven. And it's very interesting, these angels, they were created to have different ranks of sorts. They weren't all equal. In the Bible, we have some that are called cherubs or cherubim. Then there were others that were called seraphim. We know some of the angels were called archangels. Apparently, they had some sort of leadership or greater power and role. Now, we don't know what all of the structures or ranks were because the Bible doesn't tell us all the details about how the angels are structured in their ranks. But apparently some angels had higher ranks and maybe even greater power than others. And there was one angel that stood out from the other angels. His name, we call him Lucifer. And his name, Lucifer, comes from the Vulgate. The Vulgate is a Latin translation. And if you take your Bibles, please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 14. And... Tonight, we will be flipping through our Bibles, becoming more familiar with where in our Bibles does it actually talk about Satan. 
So please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 14. If you are unfamiliar with your Bible, don't be shy. There is a table of contents in the front. Go ahead and use your table of contents. Isaiah 14, verses 12 to 14. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. You can follow along in yours. It says this. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. That's where Lucifer, the name Lucifer comes from. It's actually the Latin translation of son of dawn or son of morning. Lucifer. Continuing, how you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Apparently, Lucifer, who is spoken of here, was created as an angel, and he was apparently one of the, the most beautiful of angels. He was one of the most beautiful, if not the most beautiful of angels, and perhaps one of the most powerful of angels as well. He was full of wisdom, and according to God, he was, you can think of it, the pinnacle of all angels. How do we know that? Turn to Ezekiel chapter 28. This is the other important passage that teaches us about Satan. Ezekiel chapter 28. And take a look at verses 11 to 12. Ezekiel 28 verse 11 says this. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Lucifer was beautiful. He was the signet of perfection. That's how it describes him here. Full of wisdom. If you read on in verse 13, it says, You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Just imagine, some, this creature is covered in precious stones. Sardius, topaz, and diamond. Beryl, onyx, and jasper. Sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle. And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. Isn't this a, an incredible picture? Lucifer is described, he's an angel, he's described as this beautiful, perfect jewel. He is like jewelry with all of the precious stones combined. He's perfect. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you 
You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. See, this description of Lucifer is very interesting because it says he is so beautiful. It's almost like God created all of the angels and then he saved something extra and put it all into this one angel. It's almost like that. He is the signet of perfection. And I know what you're thinking. You're probably thinking, well, hey, I thought this passage is to the king of Tyre. It is. But that's the beauty of prophecy. Prophecy can apply to the king of Tyre in his context and then also apply to somebody else. And we understand the king of Tyre was no angel. He was no guardian cherub. And so this must apply to Satan, to Lucifer. Indeed, he was a very special angel. Reading on, you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. Something terrible happened to him. Verse 16, in the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom. For the sake of your splendor, I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities, in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. So I brought fire out from your midst. It consumed you. And I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. Lucifer looked upon his own beauty, and what happened? He got proud. It became pride. It became arrogance. He saw his own splendor, and he became corrupted. He was filled with violence, and he sinned. So God cast him out of his mountain. God sent him tumbling down out of his privileged place to the earth. This is the story of the creation and the fall of Lucifer. Now, there are a couple of lessons to be learned here, and we need to pause to learn them. And this would be application number one. Remember, Satan is very powerful. He is a very powerful angel. He might be one of the most powerful angels, if not the most powerful angel. But nevertheless, he is only an angel. He is only an angel. He is not all-powerful. He is not all-knowing. He doesn't know everything. 
He is not omnipresent. He is not everywhere at once. He doesn't have these attributes. And it's unfortunate because in our day and age, in our culture, it's almost like we think of Satan as though he had all these attributes. He can do anything he wants. He has all the power in the world. He is everywhere. He is in your head and 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 your head at the same time. Somehow he's everywhere. But that's not him. He is just an angel. Those attributes only belong to one person, and that is God. God is all-powerful. He is the only one who is all-knowing. God is the only one who is everywhere at once. So be careful. Do not attribute to Satan what only belongs to God. And be careful not to fear Satan the way you ought to fear God. That's very important. Satan is not the scariest being that exists. God is. There's a second application as we consider the fact that Satan's pride is at the heart of his fall. Please don't forget, sin always begins with pride. Pride says, look at me. Pride says, I am pretty awesome. Pride says, I have to look out for number one. Pride would say things like, I deserve better. I deserve better than this. Who are you to treat me that way? Pride says, I don't care. I'm going to do what I want because it's what makes me happy. Pride says, I am valuable. I have the right to be happy. I have the right to do what I want. Pride says, I am important. I, 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 me, me, me. That's pride. And don't forget, sin is spelled S-I-N. I I is in the middle. Remember, sin is when you put I as the center of everything. And that is exactly what we see in Satan. Satan this fallen angel. Beware of pride. We must move on to the next scene, scene number two, Satan tempts Eve. Sometime later, shortly after Satan fell, he finds his way into the Garden of Eden. And there in the Garden of Eden, he listens. He listens as God is giving a man, some instructions. God says to the man that he had created, you can eat of any tree in the garden except for one. The tree that is in the midst of the garden, you shall not eat of it. If you eat of it, you will surely die. He listens 
as God gives these instructions to the man, that he should not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And maybe a short time later, somehow, maybe because of the power that's given to him as an angel, he manages to influence one of the creatures that God has created and overtakes this creature. It is the serpent. And now, the serpent, who is the embodiment of Satan at this point, approaches another person, the second person that God created. It is a woman. And he goes up to the woman that God had made, and he begins to talk to her. Take a look now at Genesis chapter 3. Let's see what he says. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, do you start to hear the language of temptation there? She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her And he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Thus, sin entered into the world. Now, what are we to make of this story? What are we to make of this scene in the life of Satan? The first application is this. I want to ask you this question. What makes Satan so clever? It says the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. And in many ways, that is attributing that that cleverness to Satan. What makes Satan so clever? Notice what he says. Did God actually say You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? What is that? That's him raising questions. Raising questions in her mind. That is Satan creating doubt in her mind about the word of God. What what makes Satan so clever? He creates doubt in the word of God. Did God actually say that? 
Are you sure? This is how he cleverly deceives people. He creates doubt in your mind that maybe this is not what God said. Even though maybe you've read it in your Bible, you've heard it before, you've seen it with your own eyes. Oh, but it's, did God really say that? I mean, just think about how he creates doubt in the word of God in our day. Many of you are students, and as students, you learn a lot in school. Here are some of the things you learn in school. The world was created through evolution. There was no such thing as a creator. It all happened by chance. God doesn't exist. We are a society of facts, mathematics, science, evidence. You can't prove God. What is marriage? What's wrong with people who are of the same sex getting married? If you don't think that's right, now you're intolerant. Oh, you are a victim, by the way. You are never at fault for what you do. Just rely on yourself. You can find the strength in you. Or how about this? Learn to love yourself. Or how about this? There are no two genders. What is gender anyway? It's whatever you want it to be. Doesn't God's word teach us about all these things? I thought so doubt maybe you're younger and you're not as well versed in the scriptures doubt maybe you're older you've heard it all in church before but you know what people who buy the buy into these ideas seem to be doing just fine do i really need to accept what the bible says Isn't it a little antiquated? Doubt. That's how he deceives us. And not only does he create doubt in the word of God, he even creates doubt in the trustworthiness of God. Remember what he says to her, to Eve? You will not surely die. Isn't that what God just said? And by the way, On this side of the fall of man, don't we die? Yes. So what is he saying when he says, you will not surely die? He's saying, you know what? God's lying to you. You can't trust him. He's lying. You see, that's what Satan does. That's what makes Satan so clever. He creates doubt in the word of God, and then he creates 
doubt in the trustworthiness of God as well. So that at the end of the day, you stop believing altogether. You will be like Eve. Oh, this fruit looks good. It is so appealing. It seems so desirable. Beware of his schemes. There's another application from this scene. From that first day, when sin entered the human race, God already actually revealed his plan to us. If you take a look, continuing in this chapter, Genesis chapter 3, take a look at verses 14 to 15. The Lord God comes. He finds that the man and the woman, they have sinned. They are hiding from him because they now know that they are naked. And God is very stern. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. So God pronounces a curse on the serpent, on Satan. And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. That is conflict. I will put conflict between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And then it says this. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Who is the he that will bruise his head? It's the woman's offspring. The woman's offspring is going to bruise his head. Whose head? The serpent's head, Satan. Now, this is really strange because God just said that he will put conflict between the serpent and the woman and between the serpent's offspring and the woman's offspring. And yet now he says the woman's offspring is going to bruise not the serpent's offspring, but the serpent himself. Who is that? Someone, a man born of woman, is going to come and bruise the head of the serpent, will be in conflict with the serpent, and the serpent will bite at his heels. If you guys have ever seen that movie, it's an older movie now, called The Passion of the Christ. When it came out, it was very controversial because it was so graphic in portraying the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. There's a scene in there that I loved. It is not accurate to the Bible, okay? But I still loved it. <laughs> I'll tell you why. It's the scene just before Jesus is arrested and crucified. He's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. He is kneeling. He's on his knees. And suddenly, 
a snake comes out and slithers right up to him. He sees it. He stands up quietly and calmly. And he stomps on its head. Now, if you ever read the story of Jesus in the garden, you never see that in the Bible. <laughs> That's because it's here in Genesis. You will nip at his heel. You will injure him. But he will step on your head. That's very important for us to understand here. From the first day when sin entered into the world, God already prophesied that Jesus Christ will crush Satan under his foot. Satan knows this. We must move on. Scene three, Satan tests Job. Some time goes by, Satan comes before God, and God tells Satan that Job is a very righteous man. So take your Bibles and turn with me to Job chapter 1. God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Take a look at verse 6, or sorry, Verse 8, and the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? But Satan doesn't buy it. He says, you know what? Job only respects you, worships you, lives righteously because you give him everything. He has everything. Take it away. And he's going to curse you, God. And so God says to Satan, go ahead, have Adam. And that's what Satan does. He afflicts Job. What happens? A servant comes to him. Oh, some people, they were stealing the animals. They stole all your animals and killed all your servants. And then at that same moment, Oh no, more people came to raid and they took everything that belongs to you. They got everything. And then at the same moment, another person comes. Job, the wind blew. It was so strong that the house fell down and killed all of your children. Here's Job's response. Job chapter 1, verses 20 to 22. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, 
Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. How amazing this response is. I didn't come to this earth with anything. I'm not going to leave this earth with anything either. The Lord gave, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Some time goes by, and Satan comes to God again. And God says, well, take a look at Job, my servant. He's still so righteous, even through all that terrible hardship that he's just gone through, all the loss, he is still righteous. And Satan says, that's because he still has his health. God, if you let me take away his health, he will curse you to your face. So God says, have Adam. And so Satan afflicts Job's body. Chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, and he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. At that point, Job is at his lowest. Job is at his lowest. Even his wife comes and tells him to curse God and die. Look at verse 10 or verse 9. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. His wife tells him that. And here's his response, verse 10. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. There are a couple of important lessons here as well. The first one is this, application number one. We said earlier, Satan is not all-powerful. In fact, he can only do what God permits him to do. That's a reality we have to understand. Satan is only allowed to do what God permits him to do. In other words, he's on a leash. He cannot do to you something that God will not allow him to. He still is an angel who must submit to the creator. Even in his sinful ways. In his evil ways. He does not have all power. There's a second application. Number two. And it's this. Satan can hurt you. He can terribly hurt you. He can destroy your life. But listen. It doesn't mean you have to sin. Satan can terribly hurt you but it doesn't mean you have to sin. People often fear Satan and his demons. I think of the horror films of demonic possessions and these ghosts and ghouls that are haunting people. No, that's the wrong picture of Satan. And we oftentimes hear stories, stories of perhaps the mission field, where there's this tremendous demonic presence that will control people, and it's almost as if they are no longer human-like. It's, it's like the movies. 
like the exorcists. And they do crazy things because they have crazy powers because they're possessed by demons. Listen, don't fear Satan for that. Fear Satan because, as with Job, he can tempt you to sin. Fear Satan because he can tempt you to sin. Fear Satan when he tempts you, for example, to be angry with your family. How easy it is to be short with your parents, with your siblings. You're annoyed with them. They do things that really bug you. How easy is it for you to be tempted to be bitter, maybe with somebody here in the church? Maybe you're bitter with a fellow brother or a fellow sister in Christ. Fear Satan when he tempts you to be short with your spouse. Fear Satan when he tempts you to envy what other people have. Fear Satan when he tempts you into a period of seemingly endless despair and sorrow. We call it depression. Listen, the worst thing Satan can do to you is to get you to sin. We must move on to the next scene, scene number four. Satan tempts Jesus. He didn't back down from tempting anybody, including Jesus Christ himself. His story continues. Many centuries later, Jesus Christ is born. He's the prophesied Messiah. He's the long-awaited Savior. He grows up to be a man, and around age 30, he, his time has come. And now he he must begin his ministry. And it's at this time that the Holy Spirit does something very interesting. The Holy Spirit leads Jesus at the beginning of his ministry into the wilderness. Okay? Turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. That's the understatement of the year. He was starving. 40 days and 40 nights of fasting. And the tempter came. What's really interesting here is the fact that Jesus was led into this wilderness when he is going to be at his weakest physically and maybe even mentally for the sole purpose of being tempted. It says, to be tempted by the devil, verse 1. And Satan comes. And he says to him, and this makes sense, it's the first temptation. If you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. I mean, when you are starving, 
not having eaten anything for 40 days and 40 nights. I don't even know how he did it. Somehow he managed. Okay? His first temptation, the first thing that Satan says to him, if you're the son of God, why don't you just turn these rocks into bread? How does Jesus respond? I see Jesus saying something that in my Bible is indented. That means it's a quote. He's quoting scripture. Verse 4, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So he quotes scripture and shuts down the devil. So the devil tries again. Number two, temptation number two. He takes him to the highest point of the temple. He says to Jesus, if you are the son of God, jump off. God has even said he's not going to let you get hurt. His angels will come and hold you up. And how does Jesus respond? Verse 7, Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, he quotes scripture and shuts down the devil. Finally, the devil tempts him one last time. He takes him to a high mountaintop, probably the highest point, and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Look out at all the kingdoms of the world, Jesus. I will give you all of these if you bow down and worship me. And how does Jesus respond? Verse 10, then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Again, he shuts down Satan by quoting scripture. Now, is it the quoting of scripture, the reciting of it? No, it's the fact that he knows the scriptures and held to it. In verse 11, then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. What do we learn from this scene? The one application I have for us from this scene in the temptation of the Son of God is this. You should know it. The word of God is more powerful than Satan's temptations. The word of God is more powerful than Satan's temptations. Listen, you only have one weapon against the attacks of Satan. There is only one weapon. In fact, the weapon is told to us in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17. It is called the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. In all of the, the armor for the believer given to us, there is only one weapon to fight down the temptations of Satan, and that is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It is your one and only weapon. There is no other weapon. Which means 
You must learn to wield the only weapon that you have against Satan. How much do you know how to wield this weapon, the Word of God? Do you like to read the Bible? Do you like to read and study God's Word? If you don't like to study study it on your own, do you like to do it with other people? Do you look for opportunities to study the Word of God with other people? Where are the Bible study groups? Do they have to be organized for you? Do we have to wait for the leaders of joint heirs or the leaders of life to organize Bible study groups for us? This is a room full of adults, including our high schoolers. And we tell our high schoolers, you guys know this, we tell you guys all the time that you guys are adults, not children. Even though our world does not consider you to be adults, you are adults. Can you not organize yourselves to study the word of God, to be trained to learn how to wield the weapon, the only weapon that you have against Satan? Must it be done for you? I mean, all the time, we know people get together to do all sorts of things. Play video games. Lots of you do that. People get together to play sports. People get together to watch movies. People always get together to get boba. Always. What about Bible study? What about learning to wield the sword of the Spirit? Take initiative. If you cannot wield the sword, you will succumb to Satan's attacks. Let's move on to scene five. Scene five, Satan torments Paul. Satan torments Paul. Some years after Jesus had died and then resurrected and Jesus eventually ascended into heaven, Jesus calls a man to be a special apostle for him. The man is named Paul, and he is called to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Gentiles are the non-Jews. Paul was a Jewish superstar, really. I mean, he was a Pharisee. He was a very devout Jew who kept the Jewish law in its entirety. He was very fervent about his own Jewish faith. He was so devoted to his Jewish faith that he adamantly opposed Christianity and even persecuted Christians and killed them. That's how strong of a devoted Jewish person he was. And then one day, that all changed. When Paul was miraculously intercepted by Jesus, halted in his steps by Jesus, who called him out of Judaism and to become an apostle of the Christian faith. But there was a problem. We don't talk about this much, but the problem was Paul didn't know Jesus when he was alive. Paul was not one of the original 12 apostles. He didn't follow Jesus around for three years. He didn't observe all the miracles that Jesus performed. 
He did not listen to and learn everything that Jesus had taught during that time. The 12 apostles did, but not Paul. Now, I don't know about you, but if you've been around the church for a while and you've read your Bible for a while, you know the Apostle Paul has written a lot in the New Testament. In fact, some of the deepest theology is all recorded in the letters of Paul. Where did he get that? How did he learn that? And the answer is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Please turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Apparently, Paul was personally taught by Jesus himself, the risen Christ, through visions. He learned everything because he was brought into the presence of Christ in heaven through visions. And he was taught by Jesus himself. He writes about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Verses 1 to 4, he says, I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. What are these visions and revelations? Verse 2, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. Verse 4, and he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. He's talking about himself here. This man who was caught up into the third heavens by visions, who received incredible revelation from Jesus Christ, is Paul. He was given very important revelation. That's how he knows everything that he knows about Jesus, about Christ, about the gospel. But there was a danger that came with him receiving these revelations. And we read about it in verses 7 and 8. He says, So to keep me from being too elated by the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, in other words, he could have become arrogant because he received these incredible revelations from Christ. And he says, so in order to keep him from being too boastful, conceited, arrogant, elated, it was given him a thorn in his flesh. Something was constantly pricking into his flesh to humble him. We don't know what this thorn was. Some think it was some sort of physical ailment. Maybe Paul was suffering some sort of physical pain or sickness. Others think it was an emotional thorn. Maybe it was all the trouble he was facing from false teachers teaching false theology to the churches, trying to correct the false teaching. 
Maybe it was his worry, constant worry for these churches. Whatever the thorn in the flesh was, we do know it was very painful. And there's one thing that we also know about the thorn in the flesh, and that is it was demonic. Look at what he says. Verse 8. Sorry, verse 7. A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. A messenger from Satan. The Greek word for messenger is the word angelos. What does it sound like? Angelos. Angel. This thorn in the flesh was an angel of Satan. What's an angel of Satan? A demon. Now we don't know exactly what happened, but whatever it was, it was demonic. It was, a, it was of demon influence. Remember, Satan is not everywhere, nor is he all-knowing, nor is he all-powerful, but he does have other fallen angels who help carry out his deeds. And this demonic torment, whatever it was, was so painful that Paul tells us he had to plead with Christ to take it away. He begged to take it away. When was the last time you were in so much turmoil that you begged for it to be taken away, removed from you? He begged, not once, not twice, three times he pleaded with the Lord, with Christ, to please remove this thorn from my side. But Jesus' answer was no. Verse 9, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. There's another important lesson here from the story of Paul. And it is this. The same, time, the same Paul who was all too familiar with Satan's attacks, he tells us how we need to deal with Satan. He himself was being haunted by some kind of demonic force. And he tells us how to deal with it. It's found in Ephesians chapter 6. This is what he writes. Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10. Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. What does Paul tell us? Having been so experienced with the attacks of Satan, he tells us the way to deal with Satan is you must stand. You must stand firm. Four times he says it in that passage. You must stand. You must stand firm. You must stand in resistance. It is a military term for holding onto a position that is under attack. You have to hold your ground because you are now a soldier of Christ. You have to hold your ground even when other people are fleeing from the battle because it looks like this Satan guy is pretty powerful. You must stand your ground. 
James uses the same idea, James 4, 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. Same word. Withstand. Stand against him. Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter 5, 8-9. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith. Same word. Stand against him, resist him. Satan is this roaring lion. He's prowling, he's looking to devour you. What do you do? You must stand firm. You must hold your ground. You must resist. I love what one writer says. He says, quote, It is vital for your survival as a Christian that you realize that when you became a Christian, you were drafted into God's army. Daily, you are engaged in a battle with an unseen spiritual enemy that seeks to destroy you, end quote. The moment you became a Christian, you were drafted to be a soldier in God's army. Stand firm. Hold your ground. Resist the devil. The last scene, scene six, Satan's hopeless end. The final scene is found in the book of Revelation. You can turn there with me to almost to the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 20. Here we get a glimpse into the future. In Revelation chapter 20, Jesus has returned. This is what's going to happen in the future. Jesus will return, and he will come back in the second coming, and he will return with the hosts of heaven, and he will trample his enemies underfoot. And then we read this in chapter 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After, after that, he must be released for a little while. This is a glimpse into what's going to happen in the future. Satan is going to be bound when Jesus returns. He will be tied up. He will be bound. He will be thrown into the pit for a thousand years. And what that means is that he's going to lose most of his influence on the earth. He will lose most of his evil influence on the earth. And during those thousand years while he's bound, Jesus will rule on the earth in person, physically. He will sit on the throne of David and he will rule this earth for a thousand years. And it will be a period of incredible healing, a period of incredible righteousness, of goodness, of virtue. And largely that is in part because Jesus is present and ruling. That's why things will be good. 
But another reason is because Satan will be bound. His influence will be extremely limited during those thousand years. And after the thousand years, Satan will be released to launch his final attack. And we read in verses 7 to 10 of chapter 20, And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the of the saints and the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil, who had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's what's going to happen to Satan. He will be thrown into the lake of fire, which is another name for hell. In fact, hell was created for Satan and his demons. Jesus said this back in Matthew 25. He said, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. In other words, God has already prepared hell for Satan and his demons. And there are two things to take away from this. The first is this. Satan is not the ruler of hell. In fact, he's the primary prisoner of hell. He doesn't rule over hell. He doesn't have a throne in hell. God is the one who rules over hell. The same way he rules over heaven and earth. God is the one who created hell. He is the one who owns hell. God is the one who keeps that unending fire of hell burning forever and ever and ever. The torment that is experienced by everyone who is in hell That torment doesn't come from Satan. It comes from God. That's the first application. There's a second to consider, number two, and that is this. You see, Satan's end is predestined and predetermined. But what is very interesting is that his story is very different from your story and my story. He had a fall. He sinned and he fell. We did too. Ate the fruit. Sin entered the world. That's the fall of man. But that's the only similarity. Because what happens after that is absolutely astonishing. After that, we get a second chance. Satan doesn't. He doesn't get a second chance. We have the opportunity to repent and believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. Satan is never given that opportunity. He is going to the lake of fire. No questions about it. Satan and his demons are not allowed the privilege that we have. 
they are not afforded the opportunity to receive the grace of God. In fact, they don't even have the capacity to fully understand the grace of God. Peter tells us this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. He says that the grace of God that has been given to us, that has been revealed to us, the angels themselves long to look into those things. It is as though when Jesus Christ hung on the cross and he absorbed the wrath of Almighty God for sinners like you and me, and the angels looked down from heaven and they were bewildered. What is that? Why is he doing that? What is going on? They are curious to understand this thing called grace that is given to us. See, they don't even understand it. And they never have the opportunity to receive it. How privileged we are that the grace of God should come to us For Satan, it will never be available to him. Satan and the angels will be justly sent to the lake of fire, which is hell. But they were never given the privilege. In God's kindness, we were. Take a moment to... I like to do this with our high schoolers every week. Just take a moment to jot down in your handout a few thoughts maybe that stood out to you. What stood out to you tonight? Take take some time just to personally reflect. Write down a few things. What struck a chord with you from what we looked at tonight? What was particularly meaningful for you? Why was it meaningful? What stood out for you? Why did it stand out? Was there something that maybe you didn't know before that you learned tonight? Was there something that was a timely reminder that you needed tonight? Take a moment, just jot some thoughts down, and we will share it in just a few moments, just in in some... uh, small discussion groups. Just take a moment to do that.